Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, colleague, and good friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm not sure the Pacers are doing super well. It feels like the title of this podcast should be Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. (laughs) Feels like we recorded a lot of these last year where we were talking about what went wrong during crunch time in the fourth quarter, and now here we've returned to the same talking point. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not great. It's not my favorite. It it kind of like 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 you're hitting on it kind of feels like talking about a, a bad relationship. What are we? I don't know. Um, so I guess we're here to talk about that. Obviously, like you just mentioned, Pacers had a double digit lead on the Cleveland Cavaliers in the fourth quarter and ended up losing that game. Um, had a very I would argue last night's game against uh the Knicks had even more weirdness down the stretch as well. How do you even want to get started with this one? I say let's just start, let's go back to Cleveland and look over what went on in the fourth quarter in that situation and just run Mm -hmm. down exactly, you know, where things went wrong. I mean, I don't know how you feel. Let's start at the beginning. Um, I know there were some talking points about how long they ran with the bench group in that game. Um, By the time they had brought mostly their starting lineup back in, I don't think that happened until the 624 mark. Then they left Matherin in and the Pacers had a two point lead at that point. Like, did you have a problem with them running with the bench group as long as they did? Uh, I felt like it went a little bit over, but it like, it wasn't, I didn't necessarily think it was like the process was terrible. Just turnovers and, and the defense. Was, well, I mean, the process wasn't good, but like, it's not that I thought like, I mean, I felt like Rick pretty clearly was like, okay, we need to get back to the starters once the, the lead started to dwindle, and he did. But I, I didn't – I don't know. Did you have a big problem with it? I didn't think it was as much of a talking point as it needed to be, quite yeah. honestly, because they still had the lead when the starters came back. And, like, yes, yeah. Cleveland was playing a lot of starters, but that's because they were trying to crawl out of a hole. And, you know, if they had brought him back in too soon, then would we be talking about, well, guys were tired and they ran out of gas – And Rick kind of said afterwards in the presser that like, you know, we need the bench to know that we trust them and that we believe in them. And they did have good minutes in the first half. So I kind of understood why they were willing to lean on them to the degree that they were. So I didn't really think that was near as much of an issue, given that the starters came back in with at least a two point lead. And within a few seconds of the other four coming back in with Mather and Mather and made that jab, jab step three against Jared Allen. And then for the rest of the game, I believe they scored. Um, seven points over the last six and a half minutes, got outscored 15 to seven, went two of nine from the field and shot one of seven from three. So I kind of wanted to get your feedback next, just over those last six and a half minutes. Like if we just want to talk offensively first, um, where were it, what was your thought process on the shot selection and what types of shots they were getting? And just that in general, uh, just to clarify Knicks game or Cavs game, Cavs. just let's just stay on the Cavs. Um, I mean, I mean, if we're looking at both, I think. I don't mean to grill Tyrese, who is, first of all, what a wild shot from Wally Zerbiak. Or would you would you consider yourself a real or fake all star right now, Caitlin? Yeah, I'm a fake all star, hundred percent. Yeah, I guess no, I'm a yeah, fake all star too. But yeah, that was that, that was wild. that was that. If we just do want to take an aside from that, that was silliness and completely yeah. uncalled for. That's not the type of way. Even if you also, want to criticize Tyrese, he's not above criticism for sure. Um, we'll We're get talking to that about and... fake all stars, Wally Zerbiak, but you know enough on that. Uh, but yeah, I the part of like I, obviously I think that the the Cavs have two of the best rim protectors in basketball, but I didn't think that their perimeter defense was all that fantastic. Um, I felt especially in in the Cavs game that Tyrese was killing his dribble pretty early and just not really looking at the rim. Like I know that it's obviously a fine blend between creating open looks and um, for teammates by drawing the defense and also trying to attack. But like, it just never felt like he was looking at the rim in those final six minutes, in my opinion. And maybe that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but that, I mean, it just felt in watching, like 
even with the drives happening, it never really felt like there was a threat at the rim. And I don't think that the defense really took it that way either. It's probably a different conversation if the shot, if some of the shots get made, like it's not, again, it's not that there weren't open shots, but um, it, that was a little bit uh, troublesome with the offense for me. Um, I don't know if you feel the same way, but that, that, that definitely stood out for me. Yeah, so they went two of nine from the field over the last six and a half minutes and one of seven from three. So seven of the nine shots were threes. I went back and watched it today, and I think that only one of those shots was preceded by a paint touch, meaning somebody getting into the paint, um, piercing the defense, and spraying it back out. So Matherin did make that first one, which was just him jab step against Allen, more or less in isolation, getting Allen to back off and then making the three. It felt throughout that game, even before the fourth quarter happened, that there was a lot of negotiation over whether they wanted to bring screens to the ball or not. So like on the next attempt, Tyrese had Darius Garland in space at the wing. And I kind of felt like just let him drive Darius Garland, you know, collapse the defense. And then if you need to spray out, spray out, or maybe get to his floater after he beats Darius Garland and miles ends up bringing a screen from the other side of the floor with Jared Allen, and then backs away and takes Jared Allen back out with him. And that just kind of felt like a little bit of a wasted bit of time to me. So it's kind of the, you know, the Hamlet saying to be or not to be to screen or not to screen. Cause at halftime, you know, not to back up. I know this is supposed to be more about the fourth quarter, but like, you know, Buddy and Tyrese kind of had their little, like, I don't want to call it an argument, but discussion over whether, you know, Tyrese again had Jared Allen on a switch. Typically what the Pacers do when Tyrese gets a switch is Buddy will go set a reignition screen or a go screen to create some type of hesitation. And that particular setting, Tyrese told Buddy, like, I needed space. I wanted space. And like, you came over and like, maybe that had to do with how much time was left on the clock with, with why Tyrese felt that way. But over this last stretch of four games, the switching has bothered him. I mean, I think everybody can see that. Bam Adebayo switching out throughout mm-hmm. the majority of that Heat game bothered him. It really um, reoriented what the Pacers were doing offensively. The Cavs probably saw that, and they were switching Jared Allen out from the beginning. And this goes back to last season. It's a continuing trend. I mean, the very first game that Tyrese Halliburton played for the Indiana Pacers was against the Cleveland Cavaliers. And in the fourth quarter of that game, J.B. Bickerstaff was like, okay, we're going to switch Evan Mobley out. We're going to switch Jared Allen out. And it, it really bothered the offense. So um, I think you could see that pretty heavily again. I do agree with you in that I don't know that he was necessarily always looking at the rim, but in the first half when he was getting some of those switches against Jared Allen, he did drive one of them and got to the rim. And then I think he got to the free throw line on another. And the thing that stood out to me when he was willing to do that, I shouldn't even say willing, but was able to do that was that Evan wasn't on the floor at the same time. So like what you're saying before about, you know, having this defense with these two bigs is it's like, they're not just big. They're also mobile. So even if you beat Jared Allen on the switch, you got to confront the other guy on the backside. And that's what led to another one of the threes um, where miles, this was the only paint touch one. Um, Tyrese drove it, got into the paint and then threw it out to miles in the corner. And miles like didn't even get to dip the ball. He pretty much just had to shoot it right when he caught it um, to even get a shot off. So then there was another one where buddy got a switch against Jared Allen. And I think Donovan Mitchell had been guarding him and buddy ended up, you know, throwing up a shot, trying to create space against Jared. Um, Then Tyrese took a pull up three with Allen kind of in an aggressive drop. It wasn't fully switched out. And then they took kind of a, toss back pitch back and transition to Matherin, which I didn't have a problem with that particular shot. Cause at least the defense was shifted, but yeah, the ball wasn't necessarily moving against it. It was somewhat reminiscent of what happened in Detroit last year. where like, I feel like they needed to get to the next action or they needed to bring a secondary screen or get Tyrese with the switch on Jared Allen. And then if you're going to play Andrew Nemhard at the other end of, at the end of the game, let Andrew Nemhard initiate from the other side of the floor, mm-hmm. like get the switch, swing the ball to Nemhard, let him run offense and play four on four with Jared Allen out on the perimeter. But like you said, that's, that's harder to do when you have two rim protectors on the floor at the same time. But yeah, I didn't I, think the, yeah, you go ahead. Oh, well, yeah. Cause I just want to go off that as well. I I mean, I feel like part of it is probably that they just didn't want to get the bigs involved at the, at the level of the screen, but they really didn't, especially in that fourth quarter. I don't really even remember them going to miles as the screener at all. And it felt like he was just mostly spaced, but also in doing that, they had his defender sagging off and and clogging up the lane as well. So it was, um, it it just felt like overall like that. Like I mean, just like you're mentioning, it was really bothering uh, how the offense was getting going. 
Yeah, because they did, like I said, they tried to bring the one when Tyrese had Darius Garland in space, and then Miles backed out from it, and then the one where Buddy took the shot was a screen from Miles. But And that brings up another conversation, because he had Donovan Mitchell on the switch, but he didn't do anything with the switch. Mm-hmm. And if you look in the first half, like he had a switch against Lamar Stevens and attempted to post it, but Stevens was being pretty physical with him trying to front. Buddy didn't get the ball advanced to him quickly enough on the wing. And like, you could literally see him stomp his feet. Like there's been three or four times this year where I've noticed him being really demonstrative when he doesn't get the ball, which on the one hand, like given that he didn't always even recognize some of the switches, it's kind of nice to see him like getting down there and demanding the ball and seeing that frustration. But you can also see the frustration um, and that he didn't really do anything after he got fronted. And on that final possession, like there wasn't a ton of time on the clock, but he didn't do anything when Donovan Mitchell was, you know, switched against him, which would have given them, you know, an inside out option potentially. But the problem is, is that again, when you have Evan Mobley and Jared Allen on the floor, my guess is Evan Mobley would have immediately scrammed Donovan Mitchell out of there. And then do you really want to be posting miles Turner against Evan Mobley or yeah. Jared Allen? Probably not. Like, this is like, to me, it's somewhat like, and you know, you are living in Cleveland. I'm sure you've watched the Cavs plenty this year. Like they have the number one fourth quarter offense in the end, our fourth quarter defense in the NBA by a pretty decent margin. Yeah. So like if we're having realistic expectations of, of this basketball team, yeah, yes, the Pacers had a lead in the fourth quarter, but when you look at their options against the switching defense and what they're able to do, it's pretty much like Tyrese do something and hope that you can get to the next option, hope that you can swing the ball and continue to get into drive and kick. Like there aren't, there aren't tons of options for them in the half court. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say that. I agree. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't really Did you want to talk defensively at all too? Because I felt like that was a piece of this because not that the Cavs were lights out over the final six minutes, but that impacted their ability to get out and run. And we know that playing in transition is a huge part of the Pacers offensive identity. And I felt like it was really hard for them to be playing with as much pace because they weren't getting stops. So um, did you have any thoughts about the defense over the last six minutes? It was not good. Um, I don't want to just dog Isaiah Jackson, but his, his minutes were rough in in that last stint in the fourth quarter. Um, I don't know if you felt the same, but I, if he had, four or five defensive gas for me uh, in that. And then I think, I mean, that's without even mentioning what happens in the next game too. Um, I, I mean, overall, like I think that they just really struggled with getting pulled out on some of the switches. They were giving a lot of space to Donovan Mitchell. Um, and I mean, I mean, again, credit to Donovan for being another world, the shot maker, but also they're giving him like four feet of space. Like I, I get that the threat of driving is a lot, but that was tough. Um I mean, he had 18 points in the fourth quarter. Yeah, he was he was incredible. Yeah, I mean, he and was pretty much at 40. So, yeah, to talk about Isaiah Jackson, um, wasn't in the rotation for two games, which we'll get to that, I'm sure, later on in the podcast mm-hmm. when we get to the second part of this. But plays in that game, and the thing that stood out for me is that he was finally unleashed as a roamer big, which is what I've been calling for for a very long time. So if you watch his minutes back from the first half and in the fourth quarter, um, if Lamar Stevens was out there, he was assigned to Stevens. If Okoro was out there, he was assigned to Okoro. If Seti was out there, he was assigned to Seti. And then it was O'Shea against Kevin Love and predominantly Neesmith defending Jared Allen so that they could switch everything else and that you could use O'Shea kind of as a roamer. And what you're saying, I feel, is pretty accurate. That In the fourth, in the first half, I felt it worked pretty well. In the fourth mm-hmm. quarter, I felt like the Cavs figured that out a little bit. He took a real bad angle against Seti on one on the closeout that allowed them to get into the paint. And then eventually the Cavs were like, oh, you're not going to guard our screener. So we're just going to start running side screens. So they started using SETI as the screener and like two man game. And then that was getting Mitchell to be able to get the switch against Isaiah Jackson. And then I think he drilled a step back three over Isaiah. And then I think Isaiah also jumped on like a finishing move from Darius Garland as well. So I felt like he had some mistakes too. I think that that's overall the defensive role that he needs to be groomed to play though. So that's one thing, but what stood out to me too was that that's what they were doing with Isaiah Jackson. And I think overall, like if he ever gets to play any minutes with miles Turner, kind of like what we've been talking about with Mobley and, and Allen, if you could use Isaiah Jackson as a roamer and be using miles just to play his traditional rim protector role. But when miles came back in for Isaiah Jackson, I was very surprised that they did the same thing with miles. They assigned miles to Evan Mobley to sag off and, you know, play roamer. And they put, initially Neesmith on Jared Allen, but then moved Neesmith to Donovan Mitchell and had Buddy defending Jared Allen for the last like five minutes of that game. 
So, like, what was your impression of Buddy Heald defending Jared Allen? And why do you think they did that? Uh, I didn't love it. And I don't really have a great answer for why they did it. Um, like that, my brain's not working super well today, so that's on me. But I, uh, no, I did not have a great answer for why they went to that. Yeah, because two or three things stood out to me about it because like, this is something they've gone to in the past and I'll completely defend when they did it against the Washington wizards. I know it made a lot of people mad that buddy was getting cooked by Perzingis a few times in the post, but, but that was strategic on the Pacers behalf that they're like, look, we're going to test him in the post, see if he can do anything. And then once they found out that he could after halftime, they started doubling him. Um, and they did adjust the matchup a little bit. Like I would prefer that to Miles Turner getting put into space against a pick and pop big. Because as soon as they put Miles on him in the first half in that Wizards game, Perzingis went to the pick and pop and pulled Miles into space. So also like Denny is shooting like 25% from the corners this year. So Miles has plenty of leeway to be helping off. And this game, like Jared Allen is not going to play pick and pop. So it wasn't going to be putting Miles in space to be fe- to be defending Jared Allen. So I wasn't really entirely sure why they weren't willing to let him play traditional screen and roll defense mm-hmm. in the fourth quarter. Um, maybe some of it had to do with how much of a heater Donovan Mitchell was on. I mean, Mitchell's shooting 45% on five and a half pull up threes per game this year, which is absurd. So maybe they were afraid that miles couldn't play high enough up the level to prevent that from occurring. But it wasn't so much that Jarrett was like punishing buddy as it felt like it was disrupting. Like if they needed to scramble or they needed to defend certain screening actions, like one in particular, they set like a down screen on Neesmith at the same time as Benedict Mathern as the on ball defender, he was icing it. And then buddy was going to come up to switch because Neesmith was getting off. So Buddy's up above the level. Benedict's icing it, and it just gave a a wide-open driving lane, and that's whenever Miles had to come all the way off of Evan Mobley in the corner to help, and then Evan Mobley drilled that three in the corner, which put the Cavs within, like, a point. Like, it was just certain stuff like that, or like, oh, now we're scrambling, and Buddy's like, oh, I'm defending Jared Allen. I'm just going to go stand by the dunker spot when really I should be running out and closing out to that shooter, which I think is when Karras made one of his threes. So... I don't know, like somebody was going to have to defend one of those two bigs because the Pacers went small. But I feel like the Cavs typically use Jared Allen more often as the screener. And even if they would have been like, okay, well, Miles is defending Jared Allen, so we're going to use Evan Mobley. Like Jared's not going to shoot threes like what Evan Mobley did in the corner. So um, I felt like that might have just been a little bit overthinking it for me. And because they weren't getting as many stops, that was impacting them somewhat offensively because the Pacers scored zero fast break points in the fourth quarter, um, which isn't great. Yeah, was not good. Um, if how have you felt about the pace overall? It it hasn't felt awesome, at least in these two games, but just in general. Yeah, I mean, I think that some of that goes back even to the Heat game. Um, I think more teams are starting to pressure Tyrese full court. You're seeing Mm -hmm. that a little bit more where they're picking him up at least three quarters because, and the heat game, it wasn't just that they were switching Bam out to the ball. It was that Caleb Martin was picking him up, which was making it harder for them to get into stuff as quickly. And then they were also mixing in, you know, like their one, three, one zone and some selective traps here and there, which was reorienting a lot of what the Pacers were trying to do. So I think that the pace has, I mean, the pace definitely slowed down in that game is what I believe the lowest scoring combined game of the season of any two teams. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I do agree. That was a gross game. Yeah, that was a really (laughs) gross game. Um, I do agree with you that I think late against the Knicks, we'll get into that when we talk about the Knicks games next, but I felt the pace was affected there as well. Um, I wrote my little piece about how many early three point attempts the Pacers are taking. And that was what was interesting against the heat is that, the Pacers are averaging a higher three early three-point attempt frequency than any team since the 2017-18 Houston Rockets. And in that game, they actually attempted more early threes than they normally average, but they were playing at a very low pace in part because it was like they were just at times taking quick ones because it's like, well, if I just take this three against Kyle Lowry, I'm not going to have to confront Bam Adebayo and we're not going to have to run half-court offense. And it's like those aren't the same early threes that they've been getting throughout the early portion of the season where it's like attack early and opposite and they attack diagonally and get those two-on-ones on on the backside. That's not the same thing. This Mm -hmm. was very like the offense is stalled not even necessarily stall. It's just, I'm going to take the quickest shot possible because I don't want to have to confront all that mess. Um, So I I think that you're probably spot on. I haven't broken down the numbers to see what the transition frequency 
exactly has done over the last week, but other than the Golden State game, it has felt on well, the Brooklyn game, which was just a very messy, ridiculous game. Um, it sounds like the, every all of the last 10 games have been messy and ridiculous to an They've extent. just been very wild. Like a lot of them have been, they, they, all of them have been so unique in character. That's why it's kind of hard to trace what's going on to a bit. Other than the fact that I do think that the switching in the fourth quarter against the Heat game, the Cavs game and the Knicks game has been um, a continuing trend. Mm-hmm. But if we want to move on from oh, one other thing that I did want to bring up from the Cleveland game, Benedict Matherin, this is something that will apply to both games. How are you feeling about Benedict Matherin's substitution, um, whether he should be out there in closing time, maybe why they didn't go with him late against the Cavs for a little bit, or even I believe they took him out with like three minutes left to go for a spell last night against the Knicks as well. Let's just touch on Benedict for a little bit. And because I know that this is something that's riling up the fan base. Uh, I, oh, you, I mean, like you and I have talked about this before. I think it's when you consider what his overall minutes load is and responsibilities, I think it's fine because his defense has not been good still. Like, I don't think that he's made any meaningful strides defensively yet. And that's not to be overly harsh, but like, I think especially in, and like last night, I can't remember what shot he took, but he took like a a really, like you mentioned, one of the really early pull-ups. And I think that's why I ended up getting pulled if I remember correctly. Um, and it's like, I, I, I mean, I think it's been reasonable to take him out of the game. Like, I don't think that it's just been, we're taking him out to play a vet or something like that. It's been, you made a mistake. We're taking you out of the game for right now. Yeah. At Cleveland, they made the switch with Nemhard, which I mean, mm-hmm. they're using Neesmith to defend Mitchell, bringing Nemhard back in. They put him on Darius Garland. I think that that's reasonable. Um, maybe you can ask why they didn't play both of them. Yeah. Um, some of their closing lineups at times this year has been both of them with Buddy and Tyrese and Miles. But Neesmith played was playing decent defense. I mean, Mather Mitchell was still went off for 18, and but Neesmith played good defense against Julius Randle throughout most of that game yesterday. So I felt like they were, you know, rewarding him for that. But my main mm-hmm. thing with Matherin was like they brought him into play with four minutes left to go in the third quarter and did not take him out until there was two and a half to play in the fourth quarter. So you're talking about like 14 straight minutes of playing time. It's possible that it wasn't even anything that Benedict did in the fourth quarter of that game, or even them necessarily making an offense for defense substitution as much as we need to get this guy a quick breather because he came back in with like a minute to play. So Mm -hmm. because he is playing with the bench, that might be impacting the way they're using him in the fourth quarter a little bit because you're not just going to play him you know, the entire fourth plus the final four or five minutes of the third quarter. He's got to come out at some point in time. But yeah, I did think he made some mistakes as you're referencing defensively early when the bench was still in where he got, you know, beat on a back cut from Karis LeVert, um, had another not great possession defensively. So, I mean, I'm sure some of that's factoring, but you know, the other thing too is what I said before about Andrew Nemhard. They don't always get to this. Some They did somewhat against the Heat. Um, to varying degrees but like if Tyrese is getting a switch and he can't penetrate against it or doesn't necessarily feel like he can because there's another rim protector on the floor behind him and Evan Mobley I trust Nemhard a lot more to initiate offense if you swing the ball to him and to get into something than I do Benedict Matherin at the current point in time Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that Matherin can't score second side but if you're not even piercing or bending the defense as Tyrese, because the bigs immediately switching out, if you're not getting two feet in the paint and then you're swinging it to Matherin, like that's not really shifting the defense at all. That's just expecting him to be able to do something with it. So if Nemhard gets a screen, I think there's a little bit more that he can do. That's not necessarily showing up to this point in time. Um, the way he was used against the Knicks, we'll get to next. But um, I think that some of the Matherin stuff is reasonable, although I do understand that overall, like, which we'll circle back to like, what is this season about and what are you hoping to accomplish is probably somewhat of a valid question. Like if you're trying to squeeze out and eck out every win possible, your answer to how Benedict should be getting used might be a little bit different than if you're just hoping that he's going to be on the floor to be getting valuable reps. So do you want to shift to the Knicks game? Yeah, definitely. Let's go to it. Okay. So the Knicks or the Pacers have a six point lead with under two minutes to play Mark. Um, what was your thought process of everything that happened after they had the six-point lead? Neesmith gets the run-out dunk um, in transition, and then from there on, the Pacers end up losing the game in roughly a minute and a half's time. A minute and 50 seconds, I should say. 
Yeah, so I was watching this one uh, today, and I knew what the final score was. So, like, entering the fourth quarter, and then, like you mentioned, like, hitting around the six-minute mark, I'm like, oh, wow, these last six minutes must just be absolutely terrible. Yep, they were. Um, Like you mentioned, I think it it just – it was, like, the overall process stuff that got, like, very – why? Like like, like you mentioned, I think, to to credit the Knicks a little bit, like, Deuce McGride – McBride and Quentin Grimes were were really good with their ball pressure. Like they sent some stuff that like I think really was able to um get not just with Tyrese, but I think generally just messed with the the team in general with how they were looking um to get the ball going up court, but um like even like one of those final I think it's final minute, like Tyrese well not even final minute. So uh, they're down to with Less than a minute left, and the 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 play was it wasn't even a play like they just had Tyrese get get a switch on a Julius Randall dribble the ball side to side for a little bit and then end up with a pull up three and like I I mean I if you and I were devising a scouting report the one thing that we would probably put on it for Julius Randall on defense is okay in isolation moves his feet well enough when he's engaged. And like, I, so I, like, that was one of the things where I, I just like that entire fourth, fourth quarter, the, and especially once the starters got back in, I was just kind of like, what are, what are we doing here? It was, it was a weird quarter. Exactly. So I, I, I am with you. Uh, I questioned the process a little bit. So let's talk about that shot just in general, because Tyree said after the game, like I, I'd, I'd take that shot 10 out of 10 times. That was what he said in the post game media availability. I don't have the exact quote here, but in his defense, like just evaluating yeah. if he's in that situation with that shot, that's what shot he's going to take. We've yeah. seen enough of him in isolation switch situations. He goes to the righty side step three. And I think Rick said, you know, it's a make or miss league. You know, the Knicks made big plays and we didn't. And that wasn't Rick passing the buck or anything. Like he said mm-hmm. many other things too, but like we saw Tyrese make that exact same shot from that exact same spot on the floor against the Detroit Pistons. And I praised him for it because he was willing to take the shot. Um, We recorded a podcast about that. So if it goes in, we see it a little bit differently for sure. That, that being said, that being said, I was a little confused by the amount of mismatch hunting they were doing. So like once Tyrese was in that situation, I think it's fine for him to take that particular shot because Mm -hmm. that's what he does, but why they got to that situation was a little bit more questionable for me because of what you just said. Like, and I did check in with our friends at the Strickland today because I felt like, yes, if it, Julius Randall and drop ridiculous, a lot of the time, like makes lots of mistakes, but Thibodeau's letting him switch out more this year. Now that Quentin Grimes is playing and they have better defenders, they're letting him be more of a switch big. That's like one of the few things he does well. So why they hunted him on multiple possessions in the row, like directly were using Aaron Neesmith as the screener to get Julius Randle in space. I don't completely understand. And then prior to that, they were doing the same thing with using Nemhart as the screener to get Jalen Brunson in space. And, you know, maybe that some of that goes back to their experience with Jalen Brunson in Dallas. Maybe that was something they felt was going to be a very favorable matchup, but it was slowing their pace for sure that they were doing that hunting because they were waiting for the guy to come up and get the screen and then waiting for the switch and then trying to do something with drive and kick or they weren't even getting to drive and kick at all. Mm-hmm. So, and then it did produce some of the turnovers because somebody's like, well, I wish that Tyrese would have just taken the same three that he took against Julius. He should have taken on the prior possession. And I'm a little bit different there. Cause I feel like one of the hacks that Tyrese has found because of what some of his limitations can be in driving switches is that he fakes the righty sidestep three to get the big, to commit to him. He passes off the ball and then he cuts in front, but he just didn't give it back to him on the cut through. Then buddy has it and he ends up getting doubled and just makes like a really bad turnover. And obviously Nemhard made the really bad turnover over the, you know, passing around when miles got the, could have probably shot in the corner, passed it to Nemhard and then Nemhard tried to make a swing pass and turned it over as well. But I, I kind of felt like I would have rather just seen them run normal offense. Yeah. Which they tried to do. Well, they did do that on the big possession where Aaron Neesmith got the offensive rebound and or the tie up, the jump ball, and then Miles saved it and Buddy ended up making the three on the other side. Like they ran Horn's twist going into that. Like they had Nemhard set a screen, then Miles followed with a screen and they were able to get into the paint and and 
run some normal offense there. Like I, I feel better. Like if I were the Pacers, I would have rather challenged Mitchell Robinson and drop coverage than been directly trying to go head to head with Julius Randle in the switch situation. But I'm not exactly sure why they were relying on that as much as they were, but that's, that's probably where my quibble would have been. I just didn't think the process was great over the last two minutes. Yeah, no, exactly. Cause like you mentioned, I don't have a problem with Tyrese taking that shot. It's just how they get there is like, I mean, you could feel it coming from, from a mile away and it's like, it just, it, yeah, it, that, that one was, was, was a little tough. Um, well, and it's, it's surprising because of what happened in the prior, in the prior losses. Yeah. Like we saw what was happening with Bam. We saw what happened with Jared Allen in Cleveland. And then you directly like, at least in the Miami game, like not to back up too far, but they tried to scheme around Bam at times. Like mm-hmm. they were trying to use Halliburton and ghost, ghost flare action or Chicago to bring him back to the ball or just as a ghost screener in general. Like we saw the reverse, which we don't see often where Buddy had the ball and Tyrese was ghost screening for him trying to get, you know, favorable stuff going, or sometimes he would swing the ball to them hard. They just still weren't getting a lot out of it. Sometimes Miami was trapping, but at least they were trying to work around it. Like in this game, they were just going all in on it. Like Neesmith set a screen again, Neesmith set a screen again. And you know, I don't know. That's, that's probably not necessarily the way that I would have gone. The one time I did really like when Neesmith set a screen for him in transition where he mm-hmm. hooked back yeah. into a flat screen and then made Julius Randle make a choice about which way Tyrese was going to be able to come off of it. I just wasn't really thrilled with the the half-court processing. But yeah. um, again, and another thing, Matherin comes out with three minutes to go, which I mentioned before. Buddy comes back in. So it was Nemhard, Tyrese, Buddy, and Neesmith and Miles. And you know, the defensive stuff happens at the other end, which was kind of unfortunate. I mean, I think the biggest play was Jalen drilling, Jalen Brunson drilling that three um, with the Pacers trying. They were, they were trying to show and recover most of the time when Randall was the screener so that Neesmith could stay on Randall and be more physical with him. And because of that, Nemhard kind of got pinned behind that. And then Jalen was kind of wide open for the three. Then when they did try to switch it, that's whenever – um, Nemhard got called for the foul and Rick Carlisle challenged it and didn't win the challenge. So um, that was tricky and it was tricky for those two. And those are the best two perimeter defenders. So if Matherin would have been in, like, I don't think he would have been probably defending either one of them, but then who would have been like, you didn't want Tyrese involved in that situation. You don't want him guarding Brunson or Randall. And you know, then it's, then is it buddy? Like, but I guess the one other thing I was going to bring up is that they left Buddy in when he had, or they took Buddy out when he had five fouls, brought him back in then late, and let him stay in on that defensive possession when he had to foul to get his sixth foul. And I was a little bit confused as to why they didn't do an offense for defense substitution there, so that you could still have Buddy in to potentially score at the other end of the floor. But I wasn't. I don't know how you felt about letting Buddy stay in when he had the fifth foul instead of subbing back and forth. And, you know, maybe they could have been doing that with Matherin and Nemhard too. Like maybe you could have been subbing, you know, Matherin for offense and Nemhard for defense, but I still value in theory what Nemhard can do in some of these switch situations. If you let him run some offense. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. It was weird. And it felt like, I don't know if you noticed this too, but it seemed like as soon as buddy committed the foul, you could see miles. And uh, I can't remember who was standing right next to miles, but they started not yelling at buddy, but they started, I don't want to imply arguing either, but it seemed like in general, they were like, no, no, why are you like, like get why you're fouling, but also like, no, we don't want you to foul. And yeah, so that was weird. Um, Do you want to talk about the rotation in general? Yeah, I I should have said just to reference our entire conversation Mm -hmm. there, because I didn't actually point out the stat that I had written down here that through the first 27 games, the Pacers had the second highest offensive rating in the fourth quarter of any team in the NBA, scoring 119.9 points per 100. And over these last four, um, they're scoring 97.1, which is 26th. So pretty big slide. That's why I felt like we needed to talk about it a little bit. Um, Also been not great defense on that end of the floor over the last four. But yeah, let's let's talk about... You know, there's a flex starting lineup. Chris Duarte's back. Um, Jalen Smith starting sometimes, not other times. Um, I guess we'll just say in general, what are your thoughts on the Jalen Smith, Isaiah Jackson, O'Shea Brissett uh, situation? 
are any of them playing well right now? Honestly, well, okay, O'Shea's been playing a little bit well of late, but still limited. Um, but like again, like I don't really think all three have inspired. Like I, the most difficult thing I had with with Ijax, and I think again to be fair, part of this is like, well, they really haven't been doing that much at all this year, so it was weird to see them go to it. But um, there was a he- they were doing hedge and recover late in the game. Isaiah Hart Hartenstein slipped into the middle of the floor. Um, and okay, so Aaron Neesmith steps up. Um, I think it's Nemhard in the far corner. Rome's rolls down, but the baseline's already cutting. So Hartenstein hits baseline. But it's mainly Isaiah Jackson like just kind of jogs back on the recovery, which when you're playing that far out, you gotta sprint back. And I think to be fair, like I don't think that he gets there fully either, but like that watching that one, like that was kind of painful. Um, so I think that's right before they started going back to the starters in that game. Um, they, I mean, yeah, none of them are really playing all that well right now. I guess my thing too was, did they need to be hedging against RJ Barrett? And if they needed to be hedging against RJ Barrett, I'd actually Barrett, argue that they should have done the opposite. Because that, like, they, that they that's kind of an indictment in and of itself to a degree. Like, yeah, and that's not me trying to to degrade R.J. Barrett, but like, I don't know that you want to be doing that when Isaiah Hartenstein's on the floor. Like, we yeah. know what he's capable of doing as a release valve, and they did that for like two or three possessions. Meanwhile, when they just kind of guarded R.J. straight up, which I mean, they had trouble defending the physicality across the board. Like, I'm not saying they had any good options, so I kind of get why they did it, but. Um, RJ made some turnovers there. I just, I don't think it was the best time to necessarily be stepping up above the level and trapping him in that bench unit when that bench unit didn't have a lot of spacing. Like they were playing Sims and Tartenstein at the same time. So if RJ just has to drive into that, you probably could have shrunk space with the two bigs on the floor rather than let's go up and blitz RJ Barrett and let Hartenstein pick us apart in a four on three situation. Yeah, it was weird because, like you mentioned too, like they were letting RJ get to his strong hand pretty much the entire game. And when you're hedging and then letting somebody do exactly what they want to, like, okay, you have, it feels like it's just kind of defeating the purpose of it. But, um, because you're correct. Like, I think in the first half, Isaiah Jackson had like a sequence where, he caught the ball on delay and there was all types of space for him to put the ball on the floor and try to do something with it, which he did do a couple of games ago where he put the ball on the floor on his left, which is his tendency and went to the basket, mm-hmm. but he didn't look to shoot. He didn't look to do anything with it. And then at the other end of the court, he like had RJ Barrett in space and he let RJ go right to his right. So, um, yeah, I don't think his minutes were great, but we went just to reference for people. Yeah. He did not play against the Miami Heat. He did not play against the golden state warriors. He's completely out of the rotation because the decision was made to, and those particular matchups with Miami and Golden State both playing a bit smaller to move Jalen Smith to back up five. So that bumped Ijax completely out of the rotation. And then against the Cavs, because the Cavs play big, they started Miles and Jalen again. But then obviously is what we saw in closing time, which has been the trend for the season. Even though Cleveland closed big with Mobley and Allen, the Pacers did not feel comfortable closing big with Miles and Jalen or Miles and Ijax or whatever type of arrangement you want to make. Then against the Knicks last night, the Pacers went back to starting Aaron Neesmith at the four, even though the Knicks were playing big with Randall and Mitchell Robinson. And that kind of felt like an indictment in and of itself. But Jalen and Ijax both played. They just played them against the Sims, uh, Hartenstein backup lineup. So they got minutes, but not a lot. Like I think Jalen played roughly like 10 minutes. O'Shea played three minutes for the entire game. So it seems like he's probably going to be the guy who gets shortchanged with Chris Duarte back playing again. But mm-hmm. I just kind of, I guess my take overall, which I did tweet about this a little bit after Isaiah Jackson didn't play against Miami or Golden State, I understand the thought process between move why they don't want to start all of these games with Jalen and Miles anymore. We saw on the road trip what was happening. Lots of teams were defending miles with their fours, which takes them out offensively of what they want to do. And if we're being completely honest, if they want to trade miles Turner, it impacts miles Turner's numbers to, for him to be getting defended by fours. And some of this, I think was fairly predictable that this is where they would end up getting to go to. But at the same time, I don't really feel like this is what this season was about. Like I can understand Rick Carlisle's decision-making from a basketball perspective that they want to flex the lineup. And against the Knicks, they did play all three bigs, but and the ones where they just played Jalen at backup five and Isaiah Jackson isn't even playing, that's a waste of a pick at that point. 
Like yeah. if, if Isaiah Jackson isn't getting regular minutes, it, it's Goga 2.0. It's what we saw for the last, you know, three seasons. And I'm not saying that Goga has had no hand in any of that or that, you know, he should be playing tons of minutes. But point being is the front office drafted it, Goga as a center. They committed a first round pick to him. They've committed a pick to Isaiah Jackson. This season was supposed to be, as they later termed, a fact-finding mission about where guys can play and what you have in developing guys and looking at a longer view. If he's not playing, he's not developing. Yeah, um, I agree. And like you mentioned, too, with the – I mean, it's just – it's exactly like what happened with Domas and Miles to an extent. When you have Jalen and – and, and Miles is starting front court, you come out and like publicly state that Jalen is the starting power forward and that that's what he's here to do this year. That's why he, part of why he resigned. And then he's on the bench now just because it hasn't been working. And I'm like, okay, well then what, so what was the plan here? Like I, it just, it makes me question a lot of things. Well, it feels like a bit of an indictment if you're playing the New York Knicks, which if we go back to preseason and we go back to one of our pods, you will hear both of us talking about how much Jalen struggled against Julius Randle. And that might have been part of the thought process, honestly, because they played two games there. He could not take bumps from Randle. He really struggled with that physicality. I felt like Aaron really stood up and competed. That's probably that might be Aaron's best game of his career, to be honest. It's certainly his best game playing for the Pacers. So mm. it's not that I don't think that he shouldn't have played or that I don't think it was the right decision. It's just that, like, you re-signed Jalen Smith. You said he was the starting power forward. And now, you know, we're 30 games into the season and you've already pulled the plug on that. Yeah. Like, at least part-time you've pulled the plug on that. And it's going to be really hard. Like, you do one of two things. Either, either you're splitting the bigs up and it's going to be really hard for you to play either Isaiah Jackson or Jalen. Last night, they tried to do it with both of them to a degree. Or if you're playing small, or I mean, if you try to keep playing big with both of them on the court at the same time, then good luck to you divvying up minutes between Duarte, Matherin, Buddy, Duarte, O'Shea, and Neesmith. Like one of them isn't going to be getting to play, which I mean, Rick Carlisle said this, that, you know, everybody on their roster can play. It's going to be hard to keep everybody being able to get minutes. And, you know, that's a good problem to have. I agree to an extent, like when you have talent that you want to get out on the floor, that's generally a good thing. It's just not always a good thing when they can't play at the position that they need to develop at. Cause like right now I feel like they feel like miles, Isaiah Jackson and Jalen Smith and Goga Batadze and whenever Daniel Tice plays are all fives. Those you, you can't play multiple fives at once. So um, there's that situation and we're still seeing, you know, stuff too, where, you know, we talk about Donovan Mitchell, you know, Neesmith did a, a good job there, but they were to the point where they didn't end up trapping him and going back to that Cavs game, they didn't end up trying to trap him until there was like under a minute to go. And it felt like they needed to do that a lot sooner than what they did. And just like them trying to step out against the level against RJ Barrett and us questioning them doing that how often they need to be doing these things um, says stuff about the defense as well. And just what the overall roster imbalance is. So I am kind of of the position right now that if the overall situation stays as is that headed into trade season, now that December 15th is over that they're going to need to make some trades to clear up space for guys to be able to develop in the ways that they need to develop. But um, that not everybody agreed with me on Twitter, which is perfectly fine. Everybody can have their own opinions on that, but that's just kind of where I'm at at this point. Yeah, no, I agree. I think we've both been there. Like it's just the Ross, like, especially like you mentioned with Duarte coming back, what Duarte only played 15, 16 minutes yesterday. And it just, it it's already feeling like, how is this going to work for everybody in a productive manner? And it, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's been time. And um, I'm very just ready to see that happen now. Cause like these last couple wins, I think, What's important with this stuff? Yes, guys aren't playing well, but also like you mentioned with what the Knicks are doing, like teams have adapted to how the team was really starting to to thrive and find ways to work offensively. And like we talked about, not that it was saying gimmicky is unfair, but it was stuff that when teams really started to find ways to scheme against it. Okay, what does this look like now? And I think you kind of get an answer for what the roster is like. Like again, I think some of the, those things will improve, and part of it is sample size, but. Um, I think it just continues to speak at large. Like this team is not really close to being a team that's ready to be in the playoffs. Yeah. I mean, and, and scheduling wise, this is a tough week. Going to play Boston, going to play Miami. 
Um, we're going to continue to see more of that, and we're going to continue to see more teams switching against Tyrese and what answers they're going to find there. I felt early in the season that they had found a few hacks. Um, I like some of what they did against Claxton in the Brooklyn game. I've liked, you know, Tyrese being a more aggressive hunting the switch pocket against bigs. I've liked what I said before, like the relocation, give and go stuff, but um, it is impacting the offense, the degree that he's having to carry stuff at the end of games to initiate. So um, I think that there's little things they can do. I'd probably, like I said, I'd probably look at letting Nemhard do a little bit of it, Mm -hmm. Um, getting that switch, then moving him um, more or less moving Bam around instead of learning the lesson to go at him one-on-one. Um, that's kind of been a talking point, which I think that they tried to do to an extent, but I mean more so like get that switch, move him to the weak side and then try to do something from there or bring another screen, um, which I'm guessing is in part what Rick Carlisle was referring to when he talked about, you know, at the Cleveland game, we didn't have the same ball movement. Um, I think that's true. But at the same point in time, you do need to have guys who you know can do something against the switch, have more guys who can get into the lane and pierce the defense. And they just don't have a lot of, handling in that respect. That's why, you know, Andrew Nemhard, when they played in Portland and then they played in Golden State, had to be, you know, logging like over 120 touches in 40 minutes because who else on the roster was going to do it type of thing. Yeah. You're not just going to throw the ball to Buddy Heald or Benedict Mathern and be like, hey, go initiate this play without, you know, running them to the ball to do something first. So that, and like you said, we've seen teams kind of adjust in certain respects to how Benedict's been defended. Not every team does it, but some have. And, you know, I I just feel kind of like the, I mean, you and I talked about it. I know it wasn't a popular podcast, but when they signed Jalen Smith and referred to him as the starting power forward. And then when I wrote my five numbers piece before the season, I was like, if he doesn't shoot the three, well, teams are not going to defend him with fives. I mean, defend him with fours. That's going to get cross-matched and it's going to be problematic. And it was. So that's my only thing with this. Cause like, I certainly don't think I'm a basketball savant by any way, shape or form. Like, I just think that that was somewhat foreseeable. So that's, what's somewhat frustrating about it now that, you know, that's where they've had to go when, you know, you probably could have guessed that. Yeah, no, but. exactly. Um, but I mean, Hey, if things, uh, if they, they have some time off um, before games and they only have two games this week, um, and prior to Christmas, I should say, because they play Pelicans day after Christmas. Um, who knows? Maybe they end up going back over 500 again, and then we have to have another podcast. But Well, um, I mean, the situation below them, I keep thinking that I kept thinking that maybe some teams would pass them, but that's what the Raptors look kind of broken right now. The Bulls yeah. look kind of broken. Like it felt like last night when I was scanning my timeline that almost every fan base was saying that their team was either an embarrassment or had drastic problems they needed to overcome so yeah i mean in that sense to end this on a happy note you know the pacers were very competitive with the knicks who are on a seven game win streak last night that came down to margin thin razors at the very end of the game um i was surprised that they held on and actually had a pretty big lead against the cleveland cavaliers to be honest so mm-hmm. in that sense there's there's plenty to be happy and optimistic about with regards to the team yeah. too. i just wanted to take this opportunity to really kind of drill down on what the main talking point about the team has been, which is their ability to hold on to leads. No, I appreciate that. Um, and one last thing I do want to say too, like you mentioned, I think, and this is not to just completely hammer it home, but when you're talking about the idea of just making trades right now, they're hitting a point where it's, you have to do it. And I'm not saying that it's like, I, I don't, I think that there's a lot that can be overdone with sunk cost, but just, in terms of what this year is supposed to be, and like you're mentioning, like, okay, Washington hasn't won. They haven't won a game since November. They've won, my bad. They've won one game since November 20th. Two games, I mean. So one game since November 21st. Um, I think they're 1-11 in their last 12 games. Uh, a team that definitely is ripe for something to happen. Chicago, 11-18 right now, got blown out by a Wolves team without their starting power forward and center yesterday. Um, I think they let up, if I remember correctly, I want to say Casey Johnson, really great writer who covers the Bulls, tweeted that that was the most points they let up since the 80s in Chicago in a single game that was in regulation. So like, and like you mentioned with Toronto too, I think I'm probably more bullish than what consensus has been about Toronto, at least being okay and figuring things out to a degree. But like, exactly. Like the, I just think when you look at what the trade market could be, how teams are uh, lining up in what potential draft order could be like. Like, I think that the team is really 
Icarus a little bit with this. Like, and I, I, again, like we've talked about, like, I think that there's some positives in that, but also it, we've been talking about this for like two or three weeks where it started to feel like, okay, this is turning a little bit. And I'm, I'm not saying that you have to make a move like knee jerk like that, but I don't know. It's just at this point, like we're talking about the, the Christmas present that the Pacers need is trades. So, um, yes, that's how I'll close out. Yeah, I mean they've lost. They've won two of their last, what seven games, yeah, and that that doesn't discount or that doesn't include what was going on in the road trip. So, yeah, I mean in a sense, like I said, they've been very competitive. These last five games where they've only won four, they've all been decided by six points or less. So there's that aspect, but it feels like there's things you can point to where you can question what the ceiling is and look at it and be like, okay, this is a 500 basketball team, and and again. The main, the main linchpin to me goes back to the Miles Turner situation. I don't know what those extension talks are like. I don't know what the offers are like out there, but I, I wouldn't be chancing that if I were them. And to that point, it's like, how long do you let that go on? Especially if you're feeling right now that you don't want to start Jalen and Miles together. Yeah. Um, and that that could potentially be crunching Isaiah Jackson's minutes for however long while you continue to wait there. I mean, and that's not to say that you just rush around to make a deal because kind of like what you're saying right there. I think I probably agree with you to an extent. I mean, the Raptors defense from the little bit I watched last night was like a, a complete mess. Um, yeah. I, they have a lot to figure out right there, but they've also had a lot of guys in and out of the lineup. It never feels like they're all healthy at the exact same point in time. And maybe that some of that has to go back to how much Nick Nurse plays all of their top guys. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some what of a negative feedback loop there. I don't really know, but you know, maybe and Fred Van Fleet hadn't been shutting the ball wall, like a lot of stuff all going wrong for them at the same time. But if they get to the point where, you know, okay, we don't think that this form of basketball that we're playing is viable to be competitive in the playoffs or, you know, to win around in the playoffs, we're ready to move on. Then maybe if you're the Pacers, you're thinking to yourselves, oh, we're glad that we were patient because they have a lot of wings. You know, so sometimes teams, when they get off to not great starts, might be willing to do something later on that they wouldn't have ever been willing to do over the summer. So I can understand it to an extent, but I do agree with you that they are getting near to decision time on what needs to happen and what direction they need to take to firmly say like, okay, we're all in on getting these guys minutes and and clearing up playing time in certain circumstances. But um, we probably gone on long enough on that particular point and look forward to um, watching the Pacers play against some more competitive teams against this week and continuing to assess and gauge where they're at. Definitely. Well, Caitlin, did you have anything else you want to hit on before we get out of here? I think we're, I think that's good. We might get another one of these in this week, but if we don't and you celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas to the people Mm -hmm. listening. If you don't celebrate Christmas, then have a nice Sunday. I agree. I hope that everyone is enjoying their holiday season, uh, not staying, I mean, staying warm because uh, it is, holy shit, it's been cold outside. I was in California last week and getting back off the plane in Cleveland uh, this weekend was like, I was like, why am I doing this? Uh, so yeah, it's been cold out. Um, but yeah, to everyone listening, thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate and review us over on whatever uh, podcast platform you use. And most importantly, Have a good rest of your day.